All right. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, why don't we go ahead and open up to the book of James, chapter 4. And I just want to begin by by reading a, just a half a verse, and if that's okay with you. Um, it says in James 4, verse 8, it says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and, and he will draw near to you. And I really believe that the Lord uh, has given us this promise uh, for us to take steps in the direction that we need to, you know, uh, to seek him with all our face, uh, with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our might, uh, Lord, with everything that we are. And he promises that if we do, um, we'll find him. You know, you can use that home in Rosarito as an illustration. You can use it as, a, as an analogy. Um, truly, when, you know, you look at the home, you know, according to American standards anyways, you know, we would say, no way, you know, this is not usable. It's just beyond repair, you know, especially for what we wanted to do with it. But the Lord saw uh, something. He saw that there was potential there, that it could not only be, you know, a, a fancy home, but it would be a home filled with his presence and his love. And it would make it better than, you know, the beautiful mansions that were around it. And that's the way God is, and that's the way he is in our life, you know. Um, for us, apart from him, there's no hope, you know. Anyone would look at it from human standards and say, you know, there's no way that they could ever amount to anything or be anything or experience anything or, or do anything or make a difference. And yet God takes, you know, the, the, the people that have no hope and have no strength and he, and he uses them, and he fills their life, and he fixes their life. And he does that uh, as we draw near to him, you know, as we yield our life to him. Maybe some of you here today, you're not a Christian. You don't really know the Lord, and you come to church sometimes, and God says, listen, you need to surrender your life. You know, those things that you're holding on to, that relationship that you're holding on to, it's not of me, and I want, I want all of you. I don't just want part of you. And as you draw near to God, then he draws near to you and he begins to use your life and bless your life and, and make it what it was intended to be. And, you know, today we start a series. Uh, it's all about the study of just God, you know. Uh, it's funny. I've been pastoring for a long time. I've never done a study all about God like that, you know. Uh, when I first started teaching as a Christian and then going into the Bible college, you know, I, I would teach studies like this. It was called systematic theology. And, uh, you know, it was cool, you know, but um, wouldn't really bring it into the pulpit because part of me was thinking, well, I don't know. I don't want to make this a school. But, you know, the Lord kind of brought it to uh, my heart to just together with you, let's just study God. Let's just focus on him. You know, we can focus on our own sins and our own wins and our own situations. We could focus on our own flaws and failures. Um, but that probably won't get us far. But I believe if we focus on him and learn about him and get to know him, then we will fall in love with him and we'll be what he made us to be in light of who we are in him. He's such an awesome God. He's such a great, awesome God. And I think a lot of times we forget that. A lot of times I think what ends up happening in our life is we, you know, we do examination. And there is a place for examination of self, but that doesn't replace concentration on him. 
And I really believe that God is looking for people who really believe. A lot of times we go to church and we believe this much and we believe right here, but we don't really believe. We don't really believe that he hears every word and he knows every thought and he sees everything that's going on. We don't really believe that he's here and he hears our cries and he hears our prayers. A lot of times we pray and we get up and we think, well, I'm sure nothing really happened because I didn't, you know, get zapped by the Holy Spirit or something. And yet the Bible says he hears your cries, he, every tear, everything. He hears, but we we got to believe in him more. we got to know more about who he is and how great he is. And, and I think that as we do that, then the Lord will do a transforming work in his life. I think he's looking for more from his church. Don't get me wrong. He loves you. He loves you so much. But I really do believe he wants more from us. And the way that that will happen is to lift up our eyes and to focus on him. And so we'll do a series of Sundays just on the study of God. You know, today we're going to look at his existence and the revelation. Next week we'll look at the Trinity and then we'll begin to look at his attributes. And I think that as we do, we're, we're really going to get blessed. And I think for a lot of us, it'll be a fresh awe and discovery of who God is. And I read a story, um, it was from Art Linkletter. Any of you guys remember Art Linkletter? Okay, so you guys are the older folk here, huh? (laughs) Now, I've heard of his name, Art Linkletter. Apparently, he saw a small boy drawing a picture, and he asked the little boy, what are you drawing? And the little boy said, a picture of God. And Linkletter said to the little boy, hey, no one knows what God looks like. To which the little boy confidently responded, well, now they will. You know, and this morning we begin this series on the doctrine of God and, and the biblical teaching, the truth about God. And in some ways, I kind of feel like the little boy, you know, who wanted to draw a picture of God for everyone to see. And in some ways, I guess I am, you know, because even a lifetime devoted to the study of the Bible and biblical books and writings and reasonings will never give us humans a full picture of God. I wonder even when we get to heaven whether or not we're going to know you know, everything about God. I kind of doubt it. God is so great. He's so grand, so wonderful. But the cool thing is that God has revealed himself to a certain extent, and that's what we're going to study together, the revelations of his word. And as we do that, hopefully, prayerfully, in the end of the series, we will see him, at least a sketch of him, and then know him and begin to emulate him more and more. You know, I'm so blessed to be able to take some time, a series of Sundays, and just learn and hopefully then yearn for God. Uh, I pray that when we do this, we'll call it Theology 101, that we will see like we've never seen before. And you watch. I believe if your heart is open, you will discover his glory, his greatness, his amazing grace. You will be strengthened in his existence and his essence and his nature and his nurture of his people. You will know again in a fresh way his holiness, his heart, his loveliness, his faithfulness. You'll know even in a more solid way the Trinity or maybe even things like infinity, omnipresence, omnipotence the transcendence and the omniscience of God. We'll study for a little bit some of his names, some of his attributes, not everything, but I think enough to be freshly awed and just blown away at what an amazing God we have. You know, I shared with you last time I was here that we need to spend less time focusing on ourselves and our flaws and our failures and our sins, and we need to spend more time 
focused on God. And so that's what I want to do. The Bible says to fix your eyes on Jesus because he's the author and the finisher of your faith. We need to be so careful, like I shared last time, that we don't become, you know, anthropocentric people, man, you know, centered on man and, you know, whether it be yourself or some other human being. We need to be theocentric people, people that are totally anchored, centered, focused on God. You know, I encourage you guys to determine that in your heart. You know, last week when I was going through my devotional studies, I read a great passage on this. It's Psalm 25, verse 15, and it says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, therefore he shall pluck my feet out of the net. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, he shall pluck my feet out of the net. You know, and for all of us here, it doesn't matter who you are, how long you've been a Christian, there's a net, there's a trap, there's a snare that the enemy sets before us to slow you down, to knock you down. But when your eyes are ever toward the Lord, What he does is he rescues you. He rescues you from a nominal Christian life. He rescues you from the enemy who's trying to destroy your family or destroy your purity. When your eyes are ever toward the Lord, he sees a trap that you can't see. A lot of times we think, well, I've got to focus on the trap. And there's an element of truth to that. But no, you've got to focus on the Lord because he alone sees all the things that you cannot see. And so we have to... Fix our eyes on Jesus. Our eyes have to ever be toward the Lord for protection and even for peace. Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Whose mind is stayed on you. Your mind has to stay there. And as you do that, then God will give you perfect peace no matter what the storm it is that you're experiencing in life. You know, I want to trust the Lord, and so I need to choose to focus on the Lord. You know, for us, as we begin to study him and just, you know, read the Bible, I think, from different lenses and different perspectives. Because I think a lot of times we can read the Bible with a warped perspective, you know, and it's all about me and what I got to do. You know, but remember, when Paul wrote Ephesians, and Jason's mentioned this in his study last week, the first three chapters were all about who God was. and were all about what God has done, all about your wealth and riches and wonderful God. Then, after that, he then said, okay, now it's your responsibility to begin to walk. A lot of times what happens is we put the cart before the horse, and it's all about what i got to do, and unless you get it right, you won't know God. And God says, no, look at, get to know me, get to love me, get to... Uh, study me. And I believe that as we do that, then kind of things begin to fall in place. And I will obey him, the Bible says, because I'll love him. And I'll love him because I'll know him. I mean, I know that he's an amazing God that spoke everything into existence by the power of his word. He said, let there be light. And everything was. And then one day he came down, that same God, maker, maintainer, sustainer, died for me. And when that really sinks in, I, I think it really changes your life. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. We all need to study God and to see God and discover the divine, I think, in a deeper way. Because it has that potential to radically change our lives. That's one reason. But another reason is just to behold his beauty. You know, David said, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may go into the house of the Lord and do what? The real thing I want to do is I want to behold his beauty. You know, there's something about that. There's something about seeing how awesome God is that is just in and of itself what we are intended to be doing. 
You know, a lot of it, as we study this, we're going to get the blessings of learning God. But, you know, I think we need to stop for a moment and even just, you know, smell the roses. We need to stop and see the beauty of that, that color, whatever it is, that deep blue in the sky or that yellow flower. And just, man, just see, wow, God, you are beautiful. And then so you, as you're there and you're beholding his beauty, God begins to do that work in our life. You know, no matter who you are or how close you feel you are, you know, you can come closer. We know that's what happened with Job. The Bible says in Job 42, 5 and 6, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. We said, I used to kind of know you like this, and now I know you in an even deeper way. He says, therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, sometimes it's that. That's what it's going to take to change our lives. That's what it's going to take to break you, to break you, to break you of the habit or the heart that needs to be broken. You just got to see God. You've heard of him, but that he would rent the heavens and that we would see him for who he is. Job said, I thought I was pretty good. And from a human perspective, he did look pretty good. It was, he was blameless and upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. He was a good family man. He prayed for his kids every single day. But still, from a divine perspective, there was so much work that needed to be done on his heart. And God blessed him in that God took him through the trials that he went through. And then God revealed himself to Job. What that did is it brought him to a place of repentance. And I think for all of us here, I think it's applicable to us. There are things in our life that need to change. There's attitudes, there's doubts that need to stop. Do you really believe in God? Do you really believe he's here right now? Do you believe this is his word? Do you believe his spirit lives in you? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Do you really believe that he loves the people out there? Or is it just a Christian church club thing, social thing? It's got to be real. Do you really believe that he knows everything you're going through? I mean, really, everything about it. And that he has the power to change things if he wanted to. But if he doesn't change things, it's part of his plan. You see, to trust him, to know that he's good, he's sovereign, he's loving. And then you get to know God, and then he begins to work in us. He begins then to make us like him. And so I hope it's okay, I hope it's cool, but it's time for school, you know. You know, we're not going to be as complicated as Bible college, but it will be something I think that we can hold on to. As a matter of fact, today's class is probably going to be the toughest class in some ways because we're actually going to begin with looking at some opposing views, then some confusing views, and then we'll look at the biblical view of God. First of all, some opposing views. Um, We need to strengthen our faith, right? Some of you here, maybe you're a Christian, but you have doubts sometimes. You kind of go in and out and up and down. We need to be not only stronger in our faith and believe and believe and believe in the living God, but we also need to be equipped to be able to reach out to those who don't believe as we do. Because when we give them answers, then that can then be a springboard to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so believe it or not, the first thing I want to share with you guys today is opposing views on the existence of God. And that obviously begins with atheism. Atheism, how many of you heard that word? I'm sure you all have. It is the belief that there is no God. I remember reading a story about a pastor 
who entered into a store where a man was there, knew he was a pastor, and he wanted to embarrass him. And so he stood up and he cried out very loud, There is no God! The pastor then went to him calmly and he laid his hand on his shoulder and he said, Friend, what you have said is dealt with rather explicitly in the Bible. Psalm 14.1 tells us, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. But there is a slight difference, the pastor continued. The fool the Bible speaks of only said it in his heart. (laughs) You've made your foolishness public and profound. You know, I'm sorry, ma'am, but I just think it's just dumb, it's crazy, it's ridiculous, it's so foolish to say that there is no God. But unfortunately and tragically, there are more and more fools nowadays, you know? And for us here that have kids, for us here that, you know, our parents and stuff, man, we got to begin to deal with these things. Otherwise, when your kids get junior high, high school, college, they're gone. Because the whole world is telling them there is no God. And the whole world is pushing them and moving them in that direction. And you're going to lose them unless you're able to give them arguments and, you know, give them reasons to believe. You give them what's called apologetics. You know, my son, you know, he asks questions and questions. My daughter as well. And so, you know, as soon as they were old enough to understand, we began to show them Charlie Campbell videos. And this is why we don't believe that and why we don't believe that and why we believe that. We really need to equip them. Because we're living in a world that more and more as time progresses, if the Lord tarries, they don't believe even in the very existence of God. In France, 33% are atheists. In Germany, 25%. 20% in the United Kingdom. It's amazing. 25% of Jews don't believe in God. 18% of all Europe. Now, it's kind of interesting. In the United States, the figure is a lot less. It used to be one-tenth of one percent, but now it's up somewhere between three to five percent who don't believe in God. Unless you lived in Vermont, in Vermont, 34 percent don't even believe in the existence of God. If you went over to the Swedes, over there it's 80 percent. And it's all the way the government, it's all the way the culture has been moving them, and they're trying to move us as well. You see, when it comes to the existence of God, some say no, some say don't know, which leads to the second form of opposition, that is agnosticism. Agnosticism. How many of you guys have heard of agnosticism? One says there's no God, one says there's no way we can know whether there is a God or no God. And both of them, what you see is a lie that the enemy, of course, would like for us to buy hook, line, and sinker. But not only that, if you don't buy it hook, line, and sinker, he would at least like you to buy elements of it. Like for us here today, you know, we would say, I believe in God. But my question for you is, how much do you believe? How much do you believe? Do you worry about anything? You really shouldn't be worrying. Worry, uh, Adrian Rogers said, is a mild form of atheism. You shouldn't worry. God's on the throne. God's going to take care of things. Now, there's such a thing as concern, but make sure it doesn't spill over into the area of, 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 of worry. You know, and so you may not believe fully in atheism, but you might believe partially in it. But man, I encourage you, get to the other side. We might believe, not fully believe in agnosticism where I can't know God, but you, know, you might be in part of it. And, and you don't really know God and enter into that deep relationship like he wants you to have. Some statistics tell us that atheism, agnosticism together make up about 16% of the world's population. Psalms 10 verse 4, it says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. 
And I know before I was a Christian, that was probably one of my, you know, main problems is, you know, if you were to give me a piece of paper, hey, Manny, do you believe in God? I would say, yeah, I believe in God, but I never think about him. And that's the thing. You never really think about him. You never pursue a relationship with him. And for the wicked, it says in Psalm 10, 4, that's the problem. You see, we know there is a God and we believe that we can know him. And that's what makes Christianity so different. We believe that everything that is there that is necessary to know God, you know, is there for everyone to see if only our eyes would be open. For example, let's just say you were a detective, and I bet some of you would like that. It would be exciting, you know, CSI. I haven't really seen that program, but I've heard about it. And from what they do is they go in after the crime scene and they, you know, they gather the evidence, so to speak, right? And you go and you see some fingerprints right there. And so then you go and you dust it off, and I'm not sure exactly how they do it, but they get the fingerprints and they go and they take it back to the lab and they say, hey, so-and-so was here, right? He's the one. They get some DNA, you name it. What we see in life and what we see in creation is that God's fingerprints are everywhere. They really are. It's obvious to see. As a matter of fact, I don't tell you guys this, but you can't tell anybody I told you. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. But the other day when I did a ride-along with the Almonte Police Department, they have this little, uh, I won't call it a toy, okay, it's a tool. And what they do is they busted this one guy. He, was, he had drugs. And so anyways, they went and they took this thing out to him, and they have him put his fingerprints on it. And so he puts his fingerprints on it. They bring it back to the car, and they put it to the computer. They just put it up to the computer. And in that whole thing right there, they're able to pull up his whole file, man, if he has any record. Because you know what those guys do. They give a different name, stuff like that. So, no, let's really see who this is, you know. And that's kind of how it is with us. We've got the fingerprints of God everywhere. And for those of us who have an open heart, we're willing to open our eyes and ears and, you know, life. We see, you know what, there, there, there really is a God. I read an interesting poem by a lady named Elizabeth Browning. She said, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Everyone else just sits up and eats blackberries. You know, and you look at the bush and you're like, wow, you know, God shows you who he is. The, the bush is, is burning. It's God speaking to you. The bush isn't God, but you see his fingerprints. But everyone else is just like, ah, give me a blackberry, you know, <laughs> give me a blueberry. It's all about the perspective, right? And that's the way we need to understand the way life works. It's kind of interesting. The Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. It just says in the beginning, you know, God said. But God does not appreciate or even validate the suppression of something so obvious. He just simply says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We as Christians are certain of his existence in part because of the fact that we have a personal relationship with him. This is a quick side note for the agnostic. We can know God. As a matter of fact, that's salvation. I know him. According to John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus said, one day we will all stand before him. And when you stand before God after you die, or maybe the rapture, something we can't ex escape, the one question that, that will be there that will make all the difference in all the world is whether or not you know him. Jesus said many will come to him in that same day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you evil workers of iniquity, for I never 
knew you. Do you know the Lord? Are you playing church? Are you hungry for God and his word and prayer and doing the things that he wants you to do? Do you long to be an individual of obedience? Do you really know the Lord? We can know him. We have a personal relationship with him. We see the opposing views, atheism, agnosticism. We see the confusing views. You know, and this helps us to know who God is because sometimes it's good to know who he's not, you know. (laughs) Number one, pantheism. Pantheism. This is the belief that everything is God and God is everything. He's all you see and he's all you don't see. Believe it or not, there are some people who believe that. They believe that the universe and God are identical. It's called pantheism. There is matter and there is God. You guys are sitting on God right now. That's what they say. You're going to have God for lunch, no matter what you're eating. Why? Because they believe that everything is God. Now, for some, this might seem largely distant and abstract, but in some ways, it's a very vogue view nowadays. A Richard Dawkins has given naturalistic pantheism increased credibility because at its core, it denies the superiority of human beings over nature seeing nature as equal and even a source of salvation. This is why they don't mind you killing babies in abortion or even adults in euthanasia. But to them, it's a serious crime to cut down a tree or to hurt a whale or even not recycle. How could you not do your plastic? Shame on you, you know. (laughs) James Cameron's 2009 movie Avatar was widely recognized as presenting a pantheistic reverence and concern for nature. Ross Duhat, he's a writer for the New York Times, he described the film as Cameron's long apologia for pantheism, Hollywood's religion of choice for a generation now. Pure pantheism would include schools of Buddhism, New Age. Uh, One of its main proponents is a man by the name of Deepak Chopra. Stay far away from him. Okay? Pantheism. God is everything. No, God is holy. We're going to talk about that when we get to that section, when we study his attributes. He's separate from his creation. He's light. In him is no darkness at all. This isn't God. Nature is not God. Don't worship the earth. Man is made in his image. Uh, Earlier today, I started talking to Chip. I was giving him a biscuit, and I said, Chip, say Jesus is Lord. (laughs) Jesus is Lord, and then I caught myself. I said, okay, I forgot you're not created in man, in God's image, you know. We need to be careful. Pantheism. Secondly, polytheism. This is a belief that there are many gods, multiple deities. 25% of the world is polytheistic. This would include such religions as Hinduism, Shinto, Chinese folk religion, Wicca, Tibetan Buddhism. Now, again, like I said, there's elements of this that, you know, the big lie when you swallow everything hook, line, and sinker. There's also smaller fragments that you have to be careful of. You know, you may not be polytheistic, and even America might not be largely polytheistic, but we are very pluralistic, right? And what that means is that, oh, there's many roads that lead to God. In a sense, it falls under the category of polytheistic, you know. And we need to be so careful. There's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. You can't go through being a good and, you know, sincere uh, Muslim or, you know, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, or just a good person. It must be through Christ only. Another uh, one that we see is deism. 
And deists believe that there is no personal God to whom man can relate. They believe an impersonal God created the world and afterward divorced himself from the human race and left man alone in his created world. They believe that God is the maker, but not the keeper. And, you know, this is uh, something that we see more people believe in, not positionally, but practically. And I really believe that this one right here has crept into even sometimes the church. You know, as a matter of fact, I was wondering if you would turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, like I said earlier, you know, you might not believe everything about it, but I think sometimes what ends up happening is we believe little pieces of it. You know, God didn't just make the world and then split. God is still intimately and intricately involved in his world, in his creation, and especially in his new creation. Look what it says right here in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their hosts by number? He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Not one is missing. For those of you who know, you know, a little bit about astronomy, you know, you go and you they get the crazy telescopes. And from what I understand, there are not only billions of stars within each galaxy, there's also billions of galaxies. You know, the number of stars and, you know, we see a little twinkle here and there. Some of them we've probably never even seen. It's just mind-boggling to think and to understand, according to Isaiah verse, chapter 40, verse 26, that God maintains every single star. Every single star, not one, is missing. He knows them all by name. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. But not just stars, souls as well. Because look what it says next. He says, And why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary nor understanding is unsearchable. He, notice, gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. You know, I don't know about you, man, but sometimes I feel weak and sometimes I feel like I, you know, I don't know if I can continue to do this or that or whatever it might be. And the Lord reminds me, well, you know, you can't. You can't. And you can try and you can grunt and you can sweat, man, and you can try to do things in your own strength. But you, I tell you what, when you acknowledge your weakness, when you realize that there is no good thing in you except Him, when you realize that I don't care how eloquent you are, how, you know, whatever it is, you got a nice haircut this week. I mean, you name it, man, crazy thoughts roll through our, our head. God says, listen, there must be no confidence in the flesh. And then, you know, you, you turn it over. But the flip side is, is that now, though, when you begin to acknowledge that and you surrender that to the Lord, then you're allowing his power to come in. And he will strengthen you. And he will give you love when it just doesn't make any sense. And he will give you and use you when it just doesn't make any sense. And he will do great things through our life. But see, the thing is, is we have to understand that God is interested in the stars. He's, he's interested in the souls. He wants you to believe that. He really wants you to believe that he loves you. He really wants you to believe 
that he knows all the details of the situation that you're facing and that you're going through or your loved ones are going through. And that as you believe that and as you stand on that and as you trust him, then he will come in and, and he will carry you and he will strengthen you. And everyone else is going to look and they're going to say, how do you do that? How is it that you're standing in such a situation? How is it that you have this great faith and you even have a smile and it's just amazing and you just are, you're then able to testify? It's God. It's just all God. He loves me. He takes care of me, my family. Even though, you know, I don't understand, I do know this, who He is and how much He loves me. And He, he can do the same for you. You see, God cares. It's not deism. It's not God who made it and then split and quit. It's a God who's right in the middle of everything that you're going through. As a matter of fact, if you go over to Psalm chapter 8, I love this verse. Because when you look at how awesome God is and then you realize how intricately entwined He is in our lives, sometimes man, it just trips you out. It says in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him. I mean, you know, God is mindful of us. It doesn't mean that he thinks of us every once in a while. It means that his brain, so to speak, his mind, so to speak, is just flooded and filled with thoughts of you. It just blows me away. The Bible says that his thoughts toward us are as the sands of the sea. They can't be numbered. And you trip out and you wonder, well, God, you're so great. And look at here I am on this puny uh, planet, such a speck in space. And there I am. I'm only five, seven and a half. I'm a really short guy on this planet. And your heart, your mind is filled with thoughts of me. I said, yeah. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? It says that he visits us. He invades our life. He takes care of us. Over in the book of Hebrews, when it quotes this from the Septuagint, it says that you visit us to take care of us. That's God. That's who God is. It's not deism. It's not pantheism. It's not polytheism. It's one God who is totally in love with you. And as we begin to believe that more and more, the Bible says that God is just scanning the earth. He's looking in the church. He's looking in the temples and the sanctuaries to see whether or not there's people who really believe like that. That he can show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. I'm telling you this, man. I really believe we've got to believe more. There's got to be a greater faith. Our God has to be bigger in our eyes and in our hearts. You see, you have the opposing views, you have the confusing views, and then you have the biblical view of God. You see, God has revealed himself to us. We use the word revelation, and it means an unveiling. And it describes an objective action by which something previously hidden by a veil is unveiled and so disclosed for us to view. We see, first of all, the necessity of revelation. There's no way we would know God if he didn't come and show up. There's no way we would know him unless he didn't offer to reveal himself to us for a couple of reasons. Number one, God is finite and we are infinite. It's like colors that our eyes can't see. He's, inf he's infinite and we are finite. And 
we would never see him apart from his revelation of us. Secondly, God is holy and we are sinful. And there's no way we would be able to see who God is because of the marred, messed up, you know, windshield of our sin. The other day, my son, well, actually yesterday, my son washed the car for uh, my wife. And it was one of the first times he actually washed the car. He's trying to earn a hat. And so I'm trying to teach him how to wash the car. But when it was time to pull out, Shelly's all, I can't see. (laughs) The windshield was kind of thrashed. Anyways, you know, that's what sin does to our life. Sin will mar our perspective. See, so we needed God to reveal himself to us. Two things real quick, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation and special revelation. Well, Manny, how do you know there's a God? You know, what is he, you know, white, black, brown, yellow, gray hair, blonde hair, just out of curiosity. What does he look like? Well, you know, God is spirit. And God has revealed himself in two ways. One, generally, and two, in a special way. General revelation is two things, creation and conscience. Creation and conscience. If you go over to Psalm chapter 19, if you would real quick. Psalm 19. It says in verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. You know, believe it or not, uh, when you're there at work, when you're there with your, you know, compa, your nephew or your friend or whoever it is, and they say, you know what, I don't believe in God. You know, you could probably just walk away and say, oh, they're, they're beyond hope. Or you might be able to give them uh, like some little things to chew on that can actually lead them closer to the cross that will be springboards for you to share the gospel. One of them is this. You can tell them, listen, there's what's called, you know, general revelation and special revelation. And general revelation is creation and conscience. I mean, you look out at the, the hummingbird and you're like, man, how did he learn how to fly like a helicopter just out of curiosity? Well, the answer is the helicopter learned how to fly like a hummingbird. That's what happened, right? I mean, the things that God has made is so amazing to me. And like I said, his fingerprints are everywhere. We're going to look at that. It's called the cosmological argument and the teleological argument. And you can use those words to impress them because most uh, of the atheists are actually individuals with degrees. And they need a little bit of 50-cent words every once in a while, you know? Tell me the teleological argument. The cosmological argument. And then when you add that up with your life that has changed, it carries some weight. But see, what we see right here is that the heavens, they declare the glory of God. Not only that, creation, but it says right there, there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And that's why as a missionary, you can go anywhere in the whole world, anywhere. And one thing that will always be a common denominator, no matter what deep, dark village you go to, is that those people over there know that they have to appease God. They know that they're guilty and they need forgiveness. Why? Because this line has gone out everywhere. Creation and conscience. Because in man's heart, we know that there is a moral compass telling him not the specifics of right and wrong, but elements of right and wrong. You have the cosmological argument that says that since there's something... There must be a maker. There must be a cause. What's the origin of all this stuff? Why? Because something can't f- come from nothing, right? 
And then there's what's called the teleological argument, which isn't necessarily by origin, but now it's by design. Wow, not only is there something, but man, this world that we live in, it's not like a big blob, huh? You guys are beautiful. I mean, the way that you are made, the way that your hair, your eyes, your, your lips, your life, you're just amazingly beautiful. It's design. It's the teleological argument. How did that happen? How is it that when you cut yourself, you fix yourself? I mean, how is it that you mend things like that? How is it that you reproduce? I wish I could do that with my computer, but it just doesn't happen, right? You guys are amazing. And the, the cosmological arguments is where did everything come from? The teleological arguments is, man, it's, it's so complex. You look at the simple cell, it's a major factory, and you realize that there had to be a designer, right? I mean, we know this, and you guys have probably heard the illustrations. People who believe in evolution, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Random, fortuitous occurrences, here we are, so amazing. You know, that would be like an explosion in a junkyard producing a 747, right? It'd be like an explosion in a print shop. Voila, a dictionary. Yeah, right. There's no way. You begin to share things like that with them. You tell them about the thirdly, the anthropological argument. And you read about that in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And that tells us that there is a moral lawgiver. Now, in closing, I'll be honest with you. Today, I should always be honest with you. Huh? Today, I, uh, I wanted to just get into the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. I wanted to get into the attributes of God. But I figured, you know what, let's start here. And then we'll close with this. Well, Manny, where do you get your specifics from? Where is the revelation of God really at? Okay, two things. How do you know who God is, how God is, what God's done? Okay, two things you got to know. Number one, the written word, which is the Bible. And then number two, the living word, which is Jesus. The Bible reveals God to us. Jesus Christ came down and revealed God to us. And so if you ever want to discover who God is, that's where you're going to find it. And that's where we will find it as well. If you go over to Hebrews, and this will be the last verse that you turn to. Hebrews chapter 1. Notice what it says in verse 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And that's who Jesus is. He reveals the Father to us. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, No one seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of the Father. He has declared Him to us. He has revealed Him to us. We get the word exegesis from that. From Jesus, from the living word and the written word, together we will discover who God is, how God is. And I believe that as we fix our eyes on learning of him and yearning for him, the Lord's going to bless you, man. The Lord is going to do a wonderful, deep work in our life. He's going to change us. And so you're like, well, Manny, why, why do you want to change me so much? You know, Manny, well, because I, I know one thing. I want to change myself. I want to be a better husband and dad. But I, I want to be a better friend, a, a better pastor, you name it, a better son. 
um, relationships are, are very big. Uh, but not only that, I, I want to change because I want God to help people. I want to bring him glory. And man, I want to be able to help people. And sometimes I feel because I don't have that understanding of who God is as much as I should, it, it holds me back. And I just don't want, any, I don't want anything to hold me back anymore. I believe that when the apostles were here, the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 17, that they turned the world upside down. And they did that with 12 men. And I want, I want God to turn the world upside down again. And so we need to get to know him. As we get to know him, we will fall in love with him. And as we fall in love with him, uh, we're going to enjoy life and we will obey him. Amen. One last story. Um, it's about a farmer who kept inviting his friend into his apple orchard to taste the fruit and to make some fresh apple cider. He only wanted to bless his friend. He said, come eat my apples, make some apple cider, man. And so he would invite him over and over again, but the friend would say, no, I would rather not. No, thank you. No, I don't think so. And so finally one day the farmer said, you know what, I guess you're just not open to my apples. And the friend said, well, to tell you the truth, I've tried some of them, and they're pretty sour. The farmer then asked him, okay, well, which ones have you eaten? And he said, well, those apples that fell along the road over your fence. And the farmer said, oh, okay. You know what? I planted those apples, sour trees, in order to fool the boys who live around here. But if you come into the middle of my orchard, you'll find a different taste. And you know what's true there in this man's apple orchard is true, I believe, in Christianity as well. You know, sometimes... Um, People are sour. People are not really who God is, like God. And, and uh, sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll stay away because of that witness that is really not, not right. And then other times people will just kind of stay around the surface, around the you know, edges, and they don't really come in and they don't really, really know what a wonderful thing this life is. And I think what God wants to do is God wants to change things. Because on the edges of Christianity are some very sour apples. The natural ones, the superficial ones, the boring ones, the non-exploring ones. But in the middle of the orchard, there is some delicious fruit. It's sweet, it's desirable, because the nearer to God you are, the dearer to God you'll find your heart. And the more you believe, the greater your faith. The more you know him, the more you'll love him. And as we fall in love with God, that's really what it's all about. And so let's do that. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I'm just so uh, bummed, Lord, that there are actually people out there who don't believe in you. There are people out there who just they don't think they can know you. Lord, we believe in you. And, Lord, we know you and want to know you more. Like Paul the Apostle said, even after 30 years of radical Christian living, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings, being conformed to your death. Lord, I just get so bummed when I think that there are people out there who are pantheistic, 
and people out there, Lord God, who are polytheistic or deistic, and they they don't really know that there is one God who really cares about them and is involved in their life. And so, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be that way, that we would be equipped to reach out to these individuals. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son and your willingness to reveal yourself to us. Lord, I pray for everyone here, Lord, if there are any who don't know you, Lord, that today there would be a surrender in their hearts to you, that they would realize that the sin that they're holding on to is destroying them, and that, Lord, they would let go of the sin and cling to Jesus Christ and his cross and his blood and his life and his love, that today you would speak life over those individuals, Lord, And for Christians as well, Lord, awaken us, I pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Be with us now, Lord, as we sing, as we go our way, as we go your way today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.